All right. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Matt Pfeiffer. Welcome to Conversations on Retail. We are so excited for Mike Grain to continue his on-shelf availability series. Today, talking about connecting the dots between on-shelf availability and shrinkage. And um, uh, for those of you old enough to remember, I was thinking this morning about the iconic Reese's Peanut Butter campaign, uh, Reese's Peanut Butter Cup campaign back in the 70s and 80s, where two people walking down the street and collide. And, and one says, you got ch- uh, peanut butter on my chocolate. The other says, you got chocolate on my peanut butter. I think that's kind of where we are today. We So many conversations we've had about on-shelf availability, which is an incredibly, incredibly hot topic, as well as um, you know organized retail crime and, and, and shrinkage you know broadly. And uh, to bring these uh, two folks together today to have this conversation is, uh, is super exciting. We're glad you're all here. Just a couple of housekeeping issues before we get started. Uh, this uh, on-shelf availability group and series is presented by the Walton Supply Chain Center at the University of Arkansas, the number one undergraduate supply chain program in North America for the second year in a row. And it's sponsored by our friends at BrainCorp, at Barcoding, and at SES Magatag. In case you missed it, and Mike, I'm running out of uh, running out of space here. Um, Mike uh, has put together quite a body of work with us focused on on-shelf availability, really starting uh, a year ago this past May. And you can check out all of his conversations on our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash at conversations on retail. Uh, we also, with Mike, launched a gathering place and resource center on shelfavailability.com where you can find, uh, you can access experts, best in class service providers, and thought leadership. I encourage you to take a look at that website as you have an opportunity. Lastly, this just a reminder that uh, if you're joining us live, we hope that you will actively participate. This is not intended to be a presentation, but a conversation, and we'd love for you to be a part of that conversation. You can do so by clicking on the Q&A button in Zoom and submitting your questions and comments in writing. As Mike always liked me to share, it's really important that we comply with all federal antitrust laws. We're going to refrain talking about anything related to price, margins, discounts, timing of price changes, marketing, product plans, anything else that's competitive in nature. Last thing, just uh, just to share the opinions, recommendations expressed by Mike and his guests are their own and not necessarily those of conversations on retail. So before acting on the opinions or recommendations offered, always consider the suitability for your circumstances. So uh, Mike, with all of that said, welcome to you and our great friend, Brad Elverson. Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you for that. Um, Brand, I just want to know, are you peanut butter and I'm chocolate or is it the other way around? I've never heard that analogy before. That's a pretty good one, though. Caught me off guard, but you know I am old enough to remember that advertising campaign, and I guess it was effective because I still eat Reese's peanut butter cups. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Matt, you did a great job setting this up. I think the the other thing there's just to mention is that uh, Brand is a huge contributor of conversations on retail. He has his his own channel, if you will, with a bunch of other guests out there who've done uh, some really really good work on the whole shrink asset protection, safety, security, and all the other kinds of stuff. So. Definitely check that tech check that as well. So, Brandon, I got you on the other side this time. Usually, you're asking the questions and facilitating the dialogue. Now you get to answer some of the questions. And you and I've been working together for a long time. But uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, Army background, years at Walmart in the asset protection space, and just kind of give us a little bit of a hint of who Brandon Elverson is. Yeah, thanks, Mike. So, um, hello, everybody. Mike, I'm Brand Overston, obviously. So, Mike, I spent about 12 years on active duty. Um, went on active duty through ROTC at the University of Alabama. Um, spent 12, well, 11 years there and got a master's degree, got out, came to Walmart, uh, just wanted a change. And uh, as my luck would have it, 2003, I got recalled to active duty. Totally unexpected. Uh, spent most of 03 in Afghanistan and uh, then came back and culminated my career at Walmart with about just under 22 years. And I was in the asset protection staff space all but about 11 months of that. I was up in upstate New York in the then new Supercenter division um, in the asset protection space and then got the opportunity to come to the home office. So I really Spent all my years there at the home office developing the staff, um, the strategy, and support structure through a pretty, hopefully we'll talk about, through a pretty uh, tumultuous time. From the late 90s, things were vastly different than they are today in the risk mitigation space. So, And now retired March 17 and been happy as a lark in uh, consulting for the last, what is that now, a little over six years, I guess, coming on seven. Wow. 
Tremendous. Well, first and foremost, I know I've told you this before. Thank you so much for for your service to our country. And you know, we 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 get a chance to be on a podcast and have a conversation in a safe environment, and it's only because there's a lot of people that have dedicated their lives for that. So we certainly do appreciate that. Uh, let's talk a little bit about asset protection. Uh, this is a extremely timely discussion, and uh, and there is a strong link directly to on shelf availability and. People are like, I'm not sure that I understand the whole connecting the dots between shrink and on-shelf availability. We're going to spend some time talking about it because they are absolutely related. But you've been in the asset protection most of your life. You've you've obviously th- seen through 22 years of change at Walmart and now what you're doing now and an enormous amount of change. Uh, tell us a little bit about the changes you've seen over the, over the, over the years in the space. Um, you know what? The elevator pitch would be that we've really kind of, the industry's really kind of transitioned from the catcher crook in the late 90s, largely, uh, to now where it's more operationally based and understanding there's more to it than just the guy running out the door with a TV. Um, And, you know, our toolkit and our responses back in the late 90s were severely limited. I mean, they're limited today, and hopefully we'll talk about that. But they were even worse back then. And just to kind of give you a, a picture of that, EAS, Electronic Article Surveillance, you know, the little uh, tag that goes ding at the door, but it doesn't tell you anything. That was big deal back in the late 90s when when at Walmart, we decided to go chain-wide with that. And that was really our response beyond locking up and acrylic cases. Um, so it has uh, changed in the last 20 years in a lot of good ways, largely attributed to leadership, um, quality, and backgrounds. In other words, not just uh, career asset protection, retired law enforcement uh, channels, but also former operators, logisticians, finance people, um, internal audit. So <clears throat> the talent pool has changed. <clears throat> but uh, Unfortunately, the technology in the mitigation space is really kind of limited. So, yeah, it has changed in a positive way. Yeah, and and, and we're hitting this at a time, and I know this is not a big surprise for anybody. I I actually took the liberty this morning and and uh, did a quick search, and I'm I'm going to share something uh, real quick. And Brad, I told you I was going to do this. I'm not putting you on the spot, but. This was an article about how tractor supply managed to shrink theft rates when they're surging almost everywhere else. While that's interesting, as you scroll down through it here, uh, you, you quickly see Target additional $500 million in shrink, Dick's Sporting Goods, one-third of its decline in the company's merchandise profit category last year, inventory shrink according to NRF $100 billion, um, and, and you'll see a lot of people doing exactly what you just said. Well, let's just lock it up. If we lock it up, then we won't have people steal it. Yeah, and if you also lock it up, you're going to lose sales, right? Yep. So I'm not going to go through the whole article. Part of tractor supply uh, strategy is, well, number one, we've got larger items. Number two, we've got our registers right by the front door. That should certainly deter some of that. But you've been around this for a while. You've seen the ebbs and flows uh, of this whole thing. The, everything from lock it all up to put an EAS tag on it to you know, potentially government organizations reducing the, the, the implications if you get caught. Uh, walk us through kind of what are you, how are you seeing the industry uh, approaches? Because this is a really big topic in the retail industry right now. That picture you're showing me, I would, the rhetorical question maybe is, how do you have an out of stock if a product's locked up? And, you know, um, so going back to uh, TSC and, you know, store layouts do matter. So TSC, I mean, they, they didn't all of a sudden decide on that store layout during COVID. That's mm-hmm. been them forever. Just like an Apple store <clears throat> has one door in and out, very unlike a Walmart store that has probably five entry exits, lawn and garden, GM, grocery, automotive, uh, what is that? And then maybe a pharmacy or an optical on the front of the building. Um, Target, same thing. They'll have multiple entry and exits. So <clears throat> it's very different when you're trying to provide easy access for a 30,000 square foot building than a 200,000 square foot building. So you can imagine trying to do one entry exit in a Walmart or a Target. Um, while it may be optimal for control, and you know, I'm not sharing anything that's confidential, but we went through those machinations back in the mid-2000s of what if, 
what if we changed the design of our stores to have one central entry exit? So you had one set of controllers, i.e. greeters, um, and you had you could concentrate your risk mitigation technologies in one place. And it's always uh, a dance. Uh, it's a dance between what's right for the honest customer, which is 95% of who's coming in and out of that building, and what's going to be a deterrent to the 5% uh, nefarious intent. So it's not hard to figure out the math and the balance. Who's going to win? It's going to be the honest customer and what's right for them. Uh, and that's largely where the industry falls off is being able to isolate to the five percenters instead of impacting a hundred percent of the people that walk in that store, which is lock and showcases, et cetera. Um, so really, the you know, with the solution set having not evolved, with few exceptions, I'll mention Everseen. These are AI guys. Everseen, ZeroWise, uh, Otucon, <clears throat> Inview has some smart locking capabilities with intelligence, RFID technology that provides what we don't have today, which is item level visibility. Um, you know, and I did a graphic, Mike. You guys may have seen it on LinkedIn. I don't know, four or five months ago of a 3D mock-up of a store with icons of technologies that provide a layered risk mitigation space. And that, of course, as I had intended, it, it blew up in a good way. Um, but the message has been the same since the mid-2000s when I caught the, caught the bug of, we have got to do something different. And here we are in 2023, um, reportedly $100 billion in shrink, of which Part is theft. So that can be misleading to think, oh my God, you know, retailers in the US lost $100 billion to theft. No, they didn't. Um, so hopefully we'll have a chance to go through some of that. But the store layout matters. Uh, Marvin Ellison, CEO of Lowe's, what was it last week, highlighted I know what the answer to store theft is, and it's trained people on the floor. And I can't tell you my reaction because we're on a public forum, but I was elated. I was like, holy crap, this is awesome for a head operator to recognize that my solution may cost me some money, i.e. payroll, which most retailers are trying to chip away at, um, and understanding if I'm going to affect something like this, it's a combination of people and technology. So, you know, in the landscape, you mentioned Walmart. You know, you heard Duck McMillan, and he they tried to put him in a corner on a couple of broadcasts about theft, and Doug was, you know you know Doug as well as I do, maybe better. Yeah, it's a problem, but okay, it's part of what we do. So, you know, if you're looking for a headline of the world's falling apart, you're not going to get it from Doug McMillan. You had Dollar General, you had Dick's Sporting Goods, Target, and then Lowe's, and Lowe's actual improvements in shrink of late. So... I hope that that's all taken within context to say, wait a minute now, how are the super big guys actually seeing improvement or effectively managing it? And then you've got a small handful that is like, we're going to go out of business because of theft. There's more to it than theft. So unpack that for people. You 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 sort of led that way and then you backed off a little bit, but that's a really important question for those people. Shrink is not all theft. Nope. So what is shrink? How do you measure it? Where does it come from? And I think that's really important because that also lose, lead, leads into our discussion around the implications for on-shelf availability. Yeah. So shrink is an industry term uh, for unaccounted for loss. So, and when you do an annual inventory, you're a publicly uh, held retailer, private sector. The auditors come in once a year and they count the store and they physically count what you have. And then they have people in the back office to go through the accounting and look at your ledgers and all this. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's a checkbook reconciliation, no different than what we all, and I'm dating myself. Some people don't even have a checkbook, but you reconcile your finances at the end of every month. Here's what my ledger says I should have when I include sales, claims, deliveries, out of stocks, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then here's what I counted. And the delta is shrink. And at that point in time, on inventory night, um, the auditors go back, tell the store manager, hey, here's your shrink result. You blew out a 2% for $3 million. We don't know anything at that point. So that includes 
what we may have ordered and never received. So I'm going to use a CPG. Let's uh, Kimberly Clark, for example, if I send them a PO for $100 million and I'm target for whatever, tons of stuff, and there are uh, errors in that supply chain process. It never made it on the dock load at Kimberly Clark. It went through their cross-docking process. All of that stuff coming from Asia, so containers, we remember during COVID, all the problems we have in supply chain, it was catastrophic. Uh, the ports closing down, couldn't handle the volume. And we forget about that when we look at a shrink result in a store. Because the mischaracterization is, hey, you blew out a 2% for 3 million bucks, they stole it all or it happened in this building. And that is not true. And again, I'll use the 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 old proverb, I mean, it all rolls downhill. So the discrepancies that happen from PO creation all the way through supply chain to receipt are reported at store level as shrink. Very rarely anywhere between PO and coming to the back door of the store is any reconciliation counted at item level, certainly not. Case level, maybe. Pallet level, maybe. And if they are, it's random. So shrink includes everything, uh, store execution errors, price changes are a big deal if you inventory at retail. Uh, out-of-date product is a big deal if you're, say, for example, Kroger, and you do a lot of perishables, and when it's out-of-date, you don't mark it down. Well, you can, but let's stay simple. You probably take it off the shelf and it gets tossed, depending on what it is. Um, but you have to account for the retail or the cost inventory reduction. I'm no longer going to sell that, so I'm going to remove it out of my inventory. If I screw that up, it shrinks. Part of shrink, so the National Retail Federation study, um, and I, I know this because I filled it out for Walmart for 20 of my 22 years, is a survey that goes to all the major retailers and it's, hey, what do you think? And it's a ton of questions, but at the end of the day, they want to get a picture of where is shrink, what are you spending money on to fix it, and what do you think, keyword, what do you think are the sources of shrink? And you get the pie chart. Kind of like uh, it's not this study, but you get a pie. Well, you can't see it there. Yeah. So you get a pie chart, carves it up. And last year, 2022, reported 66% of that $100 billion, Let's go with that. It, so $66 billion got stolen. And the trouble with shrink, Mike, as you well know, but for the audience... I don't know, nor does any major retailer, what my item financial inventory shrink is at the end of the year. I know sales. I can tell you how many uh, DeWalt drills I sold within three seconds anywhere in my chain. If I'm Walmart, I can tell you every tube of toothpaste I sold around the world within five seconds of it hitting the register. I know my item performance. I know my margin. I know my markdowns. I know how many I got. That's how we manage retail. But on shrink, you have no idea. So typically when somebody steals something, they don't stop at the door to say, hey, brother, I'm walking out with these 10 TVs, adjust your inventory. It's just <laughs> gone. Now, retailers know what they caught because, you know, if you catch a shoplifter, you caught them. And if you work internal cases, which are typically per incident, far more financially damaging than an apprehension of a shoplifter, you know what you caught, but we know that's not all of it. So when I filled that study out, literally you sit down with the senior AP guys and you're like, hey guys, what do you think? And from an early age, I never subscribed to it's all theft in aggregate. Now, you go to some really tough stores in really bad areas, it may be 65% theft. But then you go to um, you know, Walmart or Target's flagship store across from their Minneapolis headquarters. Come on. Um probably not all theft. But when you aggregate that and you get that 2% corporate run shrink rate, it is a gross mischaracterization to, and I'll go against some of the media, that it's all theft. There's too much else involved in the process that if you don't have item level visibility, how do you know it was all theft? You don't. We are going off gut instinct, even though, and my team did those estimations when I was at Walmart, I had a really sharp bunch of analysts 
and we could do trend lines and projections and what ifs and this and it. But at the end of the day, you don't know. Yep. So there you go. So shrink is uh, anything that's lost. Yep. Don't know why. So J, J, JW, I think you just answered this, but JW, just uh, JW Franz, who is a frequent uh, participant of this podcast, just said, what percentage of the supply chain shrink do you estimate occurs in the D.C. versus the store? Um, proportionately much less in D.C. It's a tighter environment. You know, if you're Walmart or major distribution centers, there's one entry exit point and including the, all the dock doors. Um, you don't have the same vulnerability. You don't have the general public walking in. Um and you have typically one entry and exit point. So uh, much less risk in the DC once we receive it. Now, supply chain, we see cargo thefts all the time and all that stuff. I'm not accounting for that. But in the DC, it's much less, um, but it's not infallible. Things happen, people do get out with stuff. Well, theft may be lower, yep. but the claims is probably higher. Of, hey, I paid for 57 of these, but I only got 12. And there's a lot of claims discussion that happens at, between the supplier and the retailer from at the D, DC, which is typically their first point, right? And that's part of, if you don't catch it as a claim, it turns into shrink, right? Well, I mean, let's let's take a look at a Walmart DC or a Target DC. Nobody's item level counting anything that comes in that building with the exception of maybe 65-inch TVs. They're not counting 68 million eyeliner pencils or 400 million tubes of toothpaste. They take the invoice, yep, the truck backed up, they reconcile it, boom. In the DC it goes and it starts going down, you know, all of the distribution points to the store. So with few exceptions, and you know, Mike, you're in my background, that was always a bit of a rub between us and logistics because at the time, logistics was like, can't happen here. So y'all got a problem in the stores. And it was always a bit of a cat fight back and forth when shrink would get high, nothing compared to what it is today. But back then, you know, a certain number would get you in serious trouble. Um, we'd go into war rooms. And the assumption was always, man, you guys in the stores got it tough. It's not happening in DCs. Um, you get standard credit percents most of the time, but it also depends on the vendor agreement if I can file a claim to store to DC or Walmart or Target corporate to P&G or Kimberly Clark or whoever, they may say, look, that's within terms. We gave you a 1% credit. So no, we're denying your claim. Yep. And claims, as you well know, is a billion dollar business. It's yep. huge. For sure. For sure. So I, I think by law, at least in the U.S., most retailers are required to do an annual inventory for financial purposes. Mike Price is asking, do you think that retailers who reduce gap scanning, and I'm assuming that's scanning out of stocks at the shelf, uh, have done, they used to do that daily and sometimes they're doing it several times a week. Do, are they adding to their own problems because they don't have, again, we'll, we'll keep RFID out of this for a second, but non-RFID products, those 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 retailers that consistently capture on hands in store, do you think they're going to have a better job of, of being able to be on top of their shrink numbers? They're probably better than not doing it, but we all know, and we proved it many times at Walmart, you know, human counting, I could take 10 people to say, count this pallet of merchandise, and I'd probably get 10 different answers. Yeah. Problem with that becomes now, and we've seen it in the pharma, you know, uh, I was in Walgreens a couple of weeks ago at... Um, yeah, Walgreens in Chicago. And, you know, uh, pre-COVID and post-COVID staffing levels are not even close together. Mm -hmm. So if I'm a successful retailer and I killed it during COVID, uh, headcounts went down during COVID because we trimmed the store hours. We repurposed people to, you know, you got to count people instead of catching shoplifters. You got to wipe down product. You need to, you know, maintain uh, um, in-stock position on consumables instead of running down shoplifters. And if they survive COVID, the finance guys, and I love them to death, but holy crap, the analogy would be kind of an airline analogy. Wait a minute. I crushed it during COVID with 30% less staffing. We sure as hell aren't going back to pre-COVID staffing because we proved we can do it. Mm. Well, that's a that's a siloed conversation because we're not considering the position we're in with shrink. Um, so 
I doubt that people are on the floor to do those routine, you know, category audits. I think they called them at Sam's Club back in the day. They routine, routinely did that and trued up their inventory with the purpose of just making sure your inventory was accurate. It wasn't really a diagnostic red flag that we'll talk about that out of stocks are telling you. Yep. Got it. So we're gonna we're gonna transition a little bit. I've got a couple of questions that that people are asking, but both some of them are already uh, plan- questions that I had planned on asking. Uh, so while I I want to kind of switch gears because part of this is connecting the dots between shrink and on shelf availability, and and for the purpose of that, I thought I would share a screen that for those of you who followed the podcast before our conversation before I've seen many, many, many times, but I've got some examples here. Brad, you've seen these before as well. Uh, I've got several items here, and this happens to be, you know, a jeans category. So I've got four individual SKUs that are different sizes. I have the store on hand or the system of record. Uh, I have actually physically what's in the store, which by the way, based on what you just said, Brad, that number is not really very visible to, to folks, but we do know how many we're supposed to have. How many we actually have is kind of a secret number, unless you're using some technology like RFID. And then we have a reorder point. Well, the first couple of items were in good shape. It says we have four. We have four. We're in good shape. We have a reorder point. But then we have this thing, these things down here, where we literally have. We think we have three, but we have zero. Now that could have been brand because of a shrink event. Somebody could have grabbed three pairs of these jeans ran out the store when you run out the store it doesn't go through the register so we don't hey we don't get the money for that that's one thing number two we never know it left the store so we assume it's still on the shelf so we don't order any of these because we think we have three and we'll never hit a reorder point of two and we don't have we have zero on hand therefore we're not going to sell any all right so when people go, well, shrink and on-shelf availability don't matter, yeah, they do because you're driving your replenishment system off the store hand. Are there other examples, Brand, or anything you want to build on that? Because this is a real live examples of, of how shrink, whether it's receiving shrink or it happened to, happens to be theft shrink, causes on-shelf availability issues. Yeah, the, you know, an out-of-stock. So when I was in that Walgreens store, and we walk through, and of course, a ton of stuff is locked up. And, you know, <laughs> my pedigree kicked in, and I was like, hey, I was with a client of mine, um, and they knew who we were. So I'm like, hey, can you grab your, I'm going to call it the MC55, whatever their handheld device was, and let's start scanning out. And we were scanning out some product that was locked up. And there were, of course, discrepancies, much like the scenario you were talking about. And so, Obviously, I don't work for Walgreens, so I couldn't say, well, then why do you have uh, on hands in the system, but it's out of stock, it's locked up. How does that happen? I couldn't go there. Um, so to me, an out of stock is a symptom of something. It's Whether it's locked up or not, it, it, it is not in isolation indicative of malicious intent and theft. It's telling me I definitely have something. But when I go back upstream is to be able to challenge whether this was malicious intent or go to the back room and, you know, in a Walgreens store and the one I was in, dude, the the store is about as big as a Walmart bathroom in the back. It's tight. And so to be able to say, well, it could be anywhere back here, maybe, but if you go into a major retailer's back room, it very well could be somewhere back there, but we don't know it. Um, So I guess the difference is, Let's go back to the opening question where you said, you know, what's changed in the industry? In the old days, we would have immediately assumed theft. We would have locked it up. We'd have put a gadget on top of it. We would have done something to address malicious intent. Today's leaders that are cognizant of operational inefficiencies and processes, and I mean to a degree of fluency, not, yeah, I get it. You know, the truck backs up to the back door. We get crap in, you know, on a pallet, whatever. No. I mean, you thoroughly understand all the opportunities in that value chain to the shelf. I think we're there where you look at that and say, okay, um, you go back to that chart you just showed. We need to dig into that. Is it an ordering problem? Did I never receive it in the first place or is it actually theft? Hmm. Um, so it it does matter, but 
you know, one thing I used to say that used to ruffle a lot of feathers when I was with Walmart is one of two things is true, that if you're in a high shrink store year after year after year after year, and you're again a high shrink store, um, one of two things is true. Either number one, you're not very good at your job in asset protection if you're still shrinking out, or the reason you're shrinking out is not a majority theft. One of the two things is true. And if if you're allocating all your resources, which unfortunately happens a lot today, into the theft channel and trusting the store operator like, hey, that ain't my job. They do what they do. You know, we're good on that end. You're going to shrink out again and again and again. And then you get to the point, well, crap, is it more than just theft? Because I've got everything locked up. So how could I still be shrinking out if I've got my quote-unquote high theft product secured? Back to my point on the out-of-stock. How do you have an out-of-stock on a locked-up product? It's telling me operationally there are gaps because I doubt it was theft because you got it locked up. Well, Brandon, we can measure everything in retail. It's 2023. I can tell you by second what just sold. Mm -hmm. I, I tell you just about anything in the store. I can tell you how many profit dollars I make. I can tell you what my store labor is. The fundamental thing that we can't tell, which is read crazy in 2023, is two questions that are very simple questions at the item level. What do I have and where is it? So so to, to me, this is the big thing because shrink happens, but if I'm only doing inventory once a year, I could have had that shrink of that happen 364 days ago, whether it was a receiving, whether it was a theft, et cetera, I can't measure it until I do a physical receiving. What what are we going to change in the industry? We, if we made you king tomorrow and said, Brian, how do we fix this? What would what would be the approach that you would take? Short answer is true item level visibility. And, you know, forget the technology. You and I are deep-rooted in RFID, and I'm a huge fan of that. Joe Call, is do, he is leading the asset protection industry in that space. Um, so hats off to him. Um, but item level visibility and to, to something you just said, Mike. So for those that are may not be fluent in annual inventory processes, it it has a shrink has a long tail. So what we're seeing blow up this year really happened last year. Mm. So, you know, to say that, oh my God, 2023, yep, yeah, well, okay. But the inventory result is only reporting the news for what happened the 12 about 12 previous months. So now you have that and any risk mitigation um, measure you put in place, you talked about lock and showcases uh, negatively impacting sales, which is 100% true and proven multiple times. Um, you won't really understand the impact for two years because you put it in, uh, you inventory on one August and you put in all these countermeasures in October, November, December. You really got a muddy result in the end of the inventory the next year, you need a year-over-year -year clean look. So in the in the world of shrink, you're almost looking at three years of inventory before you truly know if what you did made a difference and a sustainable difference. In other words, not a halo effect. We put in EAS pedestals and it shocked them for, I don't know, six weeks. And then they're like, well, nobody's stopping anybody with the alarm at the door. Nobody's reacting to that silly public view monitor that has says recording me nothing happened to me so it's good uh till your coffee cools off and then you know it's back to business i'm gonna so it's RFID, dude if you don't have item true item level accountability um we are where we are yeah i'm going to show you a sample and this is hilarious because you and i worked on this together in 2015 we'll mention the retailer but we, we showed this thing this was a, a, hey, what would the world look like? So the top of this is literally what I expected to receive. This is receiving versus expected. And you got a couple items here. So I got 428 items I expected. I saw 426 of them. So I shrank 0.457. Here are the two items that I expected to see and I never saw. And on the flip side, on the bottom of it, it's literally here are the items that left the store and exactly when they left the store. Um, pretty amazing. So as we talk about item level visibility, is this the kind of thing you're talking about, Brian? Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, if we, 
unless we're doing item level receiving, which no major retailer is doing, you're making a lot of assumptions on what you're receiving, you don't know whether you actually received it or not. Now, they're random audits, sure. You know, in store tours, you know, particularly building up for Black Friday, you'll say, okay, I'm supposed to get 100, you know, 90-inch uh, flat screen TVs. Well, you can count that pretty quick. Yep. Nobody's going to count six pallets of eyeliner pencils or deodorant or tubes of toothpaste. It comes off the truck, goes on the slot in the back room, whatever the process is, and goes to it. So, um, you know, it's really important that, you know, our listeners, um, two things. One is value the all the contributors to that shrink dollar understanding the operational impact and i've always been a fan it's north of 50 percent of the problem the operational gaps that contribute to shrink and number two we don't have item level visibility so we're making a ton of educated guesses uh, and i took a lot of pride in my team look you know uh <laughs> as donald rumsfeld used to say you go to war with the army you got and so we did the best we could but still at the end of the day it was an approximation um and a cost to the business every time you know we would spend i can't give you the total i do know the dollar figure but it was a staggering amount of money on um mechanical gadgets i call them so the acrylic boxes that went on a thing of perfume or a tether on a camera display or a phone display or those locking brackets locking showcases um it was can i say this yeah tens of millions of dollars a year just in mechanical gadgets which do nothing other than address the malicious intent so if price changes is your problem in eyeliner pencils i keep picking on that because there it's a high skew count and you get a gazillion of them nobody's item level counting eyeliner pencils when they do a price change so you say the system says i got a hundred i actually have 200 and i accept the system on hand guess what i understated my markdown by you know whatever the markdown was times 100 in that shrink yep so item level visibility is um that's nirvana and, and we got bad news for you if you count it every day you're probably wrong anyway because people just don't count very well they didn't they didn't find it they missed a rack yep. the same rack twice you get it all like what you need this is a really w weird example you need an air tag on every selling unit that goes through the supply chain. I mean, that's the vision of, I know where everything is all the time and we can't afford that, but yep. that's really what we need to, to, because I would argue if you really knew where everything was and where it was located, you'd make different decisions about how you staff and reprocess and all that kind of stuff. So, all right, quick, quick question. We got a couple of people who are really asking about different roles. So let's just make the assumption that we have the visibility we need, whether it's RFID or other technology to know exactly what we have and where's it located, that item level selling unit visibility. A couple of questions on the role clarity. What exactly, Scott Benedict has said, hey, what are the roles of the merchants and the buyers to help reduce shrink, assuming we have that level of visibility? Ah, I gotta be careful with my answer. Um, <laughs> probably zero. Um, yeah. Uh, so let's rewind all the way, all the way back to the late nineties when Walmart corporate said, Hey, we're going to do EAS chain wide. And yours truly was the project manager on that with a couple of people in ops and, you know, in charge of the rollout, big project, blah, blah, blah. Well, the value prop in EAS is source tag. If you don't have the tags on the product, what difference does it make? So we had to go to the vendors, you know, the big guys, the PNGs and, you know, uh, Magnavox, Sony, you name it and convince them that there was value in putting a three to five cent EAS tag on a product and it would benefit them as well as us. Um, so the merchants were the first bus stop on selling the value prop. And the lead guy, and I will mention his name, Joe Grady, you know Joe, mm -hmm. awesome guy. He really helped us. And at Walmart, you're dealing with three, 400 buyers, Mike, or, you know, at least. So it's a it's not like you know have a meeting with five people over lunch and solve it. It's a big deal, and Joe Grady really helped us get over that hump in wet shade back in the day, which still is and was very much then a leading high theft item 
I think it was uh, Fusion Razors or Mach 3, whichever came first, um, to put EAS tags on it. But the accountability to the buyer is muddy. I can't speak for every retailer, but it's muddy. So in other words, if Mike's the buyer for wet shave and uh, he knows his profitability, his margin is, you know, you know everything about your business. But when it comes to shrink and I say, Mike, what is your item level shrink on wet shave? You know, the 12-pack of Gillette, whatever the new wet razor cartridge is. Fusion. Your answer is going to be, I don't know. All you know is when we do that financial inventory, I know my financial reconciliation at store level. I know my financial reconciliation at department level. So I can tell you health and beauty aids blew out 5% for 10 million bucks. But I don't know what happened underneath that. I don't know category. And I certainly don't know item. So that's where the needle in the haystack strategy starts of, okay, we got to start peeling this onion back and start creating and making educated guesses on the components of that formula to say, we're probably at X. And that's where it comes off the rails with a buyer. Because rightfully so, the buyer's going to be like, hey, dude, I ain't spending you know, three points on my margin to put an EAS tag on it if you can't even tell me how much I'm losing. It doesn't make sense. It's a real cost to my business to put a tag on, and you can't give me a real cost benefit. Yep. So I got to imagine across all major retailers, if they're using EAS systems, because that's an upstream expense, that's going to be a cat fight. But the item the, the item performance shrink line uh, on an item level P&L, if you will, in retail will not include um, financial item level shrink. So- I, I don't know that there's much accountability there other than your ability to influence and be a partner and all the qualitative aspects versus quantitative. Well, let me give you two examples that are interesting. I don't think they're the solve, but let's just talk about gift cards. Hmm. I can grab a whole stack of gift cards or run out the store and they're absolutely useless unless they get engaged and energized at point of sale, right? Yep. You probably saw Project Unlock from Lowe's. I don't think anybody from Lowe's is on the call, but that's an environment where you literally will have to take a power drill. If you grab a set of power drills and run out the store, that's great. You've stolen them, but they do not operate unless they go through a register first. We won't go through how all that works. How do you figure out how to do that kind of thing on a broader scale? Because if I know, I lock it up because I don't want it stolen. Well, nobody's going to steal it if I can't use it once I leave the store with it, right? Why would you take the risk? Does that does that technology make any other sense in in the in the world of retail, which is you only get to use the product if it actually goes through a, a register? It absolutely does. And Lowe's, I applaud Lowe's for, for actually sliding into home plate on that. That was an industry initiative about 2010 called mm-hmm. Point Sale Activation or POSA. And it was any item that had firmware was the low-hanging fruit. So obviously, you know, how do you not let an eyeliner pencil work with technology? So that clearly is off the table. Or a bottle of perfume, the plunger won't work unless you go through the register. So anything that had firmware where we could introduce a software that said, hey, when you buy that iPhone, whatever they're up to now, 17, um, great, steal it if you want, but it's a paperweight until you go through point of sale and on the receipt, you get an un- one-time use unlock code. When you fire it up, you got to type in the code from the receipt because it's been authenticated as actually being sold. You're off to the races. Two things with that. One is it's limited to firmware, so yep. only certain products can have that. And secondarily, the biggest thing we struggled with in the early days, and we collaborated with a lot of major retailers here in the U.S., asset protection is a very collaborative industry versus ops and merchandising. So we worked with other retailers. The hard part was messaging. How do we clearly tell the crackhead coming in to wipe out the whole side counter that, hey, brother, have at it, but it isn't going to work when you walk out the door with it? And again, back to the buyers, they don't want it. And particularly the vendor, well, let's, you know, I'll pick on Apple. You ain't messing with that packaging, the aesthetics, what's that look like, where you, all the pretty stuff to be able to put a logo or something on there that says, hey, good luck, because if you don't buy it, not going to work. So Lowe's, you saw on their online posting, they had a big placard over the display of those drills that was pretty blunt. Something to the effect is, steal it, it won't work. 
Yep. Something that blunt, which is awesome. So we really struggled with the messaging and the deterrent value of getting that message out because, you know, if you're a big CPG and you allow them and you're a former CPG guy, so, you know, a, a three millimeter logo on a package of Crest White Strips, nobody's going to pay any attention to that. It's laughable. But that's what we were given and that's what we put it on and we had this false sense of security. Well, hey, that's all we can do. So the communications was huge, and then it was limited to product that had firmware or some sort of electronics that uh, you had to register and get the code, et cetera. But that's an awesome technology, dude, 100%. So so interesting. So, it's, I mean, you, you did say something pretty interesting, and I agree with this, which is merchants' operations, for the most part, will see another retailer as a direct competitor. In this space, I think to asset correction and loss prevention's credit, they're much more collaborative because they all have the same. They all have the same problem. Um, it, it seems to me that we ought to be able to put smart people in a room because we've already said this is a big problem. We can't measure it today. Everybody has the same problem. We see people shutting down stores and getting out of areas. We saw the Nordstrom shutting down the San Francisco store just because they had all the smashing grabs. By the way, as one quick one. The other thing is you're actually putting your store associates at risk, right? They are at risk. If they try to intervene, they are potentially putting themselves at risk. I believe there was a gentleman at Home Depot that was uh, died at work because he tried to stop somebody. So this is bigger than just product. I take the product, but you start taking people's lives. That's pretty, that's pretty important. The, the violence. So a couple of things, and I hope I remember my second point is a couple of things, dude, over the years and you know, I was the right-hand man to the VP of Walmart for a majority of those 22 years. So I was in the trench on strategy, in the officers' meetings, and helping whoever that VP was develop strategy. Nowhere in that three years was safety ever number one on the radar of priority for that VP until probably, I'm going to peg it, 14, no, sorry, 16, 17, somewhere in their combination of active shooters these violent gangs that are coming in and have no problem shooting or macing somebody. its That's always been a problem, as you well know, Mike, with our uh, in-stores, we used to call them. Occasionally, we'd have one killed, um, but not to the degree. So if you ask any major retailer today, hey, what's tops? Customer and associate or employee safety? Then shred. Mm. And whatever else, clean floors or whatever. It's that bad. Now, back to your point on the proclamations, very uncharacteristically public proclamations of shrinks impact on the bottom line of all those retailers we've talked about. Amen. But, you know, it's like standing there with your house on fire. You're going to call the fire department or have another beer? And I'm waiting for somebody to call the fire department. In other words, meaningful investment from the retailers to from the C-suite, not the VP of asset protection or a project manager, but at this point in time, and you may have seen some of my posts, is this our Sputnik moment where we're like, enough? So if I'm uh, Target and you know my annual spend on asset protection and all that stuff's $100 million a year, I'm going to take it to $200 million and 70% of that's in R&D and future tech because, dude, there are scalable, ready third-party solutions that can impact this in meaningful ways. But my fear is we're still in the, man, really sucks. But hey, next year's another year. So, you know, if we had better solutions, you wouldn't see all the lock and show cases and the law enforcement at the door and all that stuff. Um, so I'm waiting for the guy to opt out on the beer and actually call the fire department at sea level. And that means, you know, the participating CEOs on the business roundtable at federal level on the legislative piece of it, because that is a component. So stricter laws and the laws we do have put teeth in them and they go to prison for whatever they're doing. Um, but I'm still cautiously optimistic, but I have not sensed this overwhelming, we got to do something now, and it means real money. We're still, still kind of in that... Uh, that free space between swings on the swing set. It's kind of like, well, what are we going to do? You know, <clears throat> report another year of bad shrink and hope it settles down or 
we're going to do something. Yep. Yep. Um, it, is there is there any other thing Mike Price asked, and I think it's a fair question, hey, we got all these CPG companies asking third-party merchandisers to come into the store. Do they have a role that could play? Or is it really, we need to staff up store associates and get law enforcement engagement? Probably the bigger question to ask. Well, the latter is number one minus the law enforcement. Now, I get it. You know, certain areas, yes, you need police. <clears throat> you know, the substation thing that came out, that apparently Walmart's doing in Atlanta. That isn't new. We were doing that in the late 90s, even before that. Um, so you do what you got to do. But my 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 hope is that bubble up to say we have a truly impactful, hate that word, uh, problem that's er- eroding a significant part of the P&L. But my point is, great. When do you do something about it that's going to matter and that's different than what you've been doing for 50 years that clearly isn't making a difference? Or you wouldn't have unprecedented shriek now. So uh, staffing, you and I are, you know, you and I both come from Walmart and staffing on any company's P&L is probably the biggest line and the easiest to immediately get savings through layoffs or reorgs or whatever you want to call it and not really have to pay attention to the downstream consequence, which is a year later in shrink results. Well, if nobody's on the floor to Marvin Ellison's point at Lowe's, how in the hell are you surprised that they're walking out with half the store and nobody knows it? Yeah. So I hate to say it because, you know, I understand there are technologies out there. There's AI out there. There are other things that can be part of the solution. Uh, but I have no expectation of going back to pre-COVID staffing levels um, to get our arms around it. It's a nice thought, but and it does matter for those that may say, well, does staffing really matter? It absolutely matters. I firmly believe as, as long as as long as I'm still on this earth, we will still have a brick and mortar store environment that allows you to go shop. I don't think Amazon is going to become the only place, but this kind of thing certainly encourages Amazon. One of the questions in here was, is anybody actually measured when you lock up stuff, the customer impact, the honest customer who wants to buy their stuff? What's the impact to them other than frustration to try and get their stuff? They could see it, but they just can't get to it. Uh, what What's the answer for that? Because to me, all we're doing is we're penalizing very, very honest customers because we got a couple of bad apples that want to steal stuff. Yep. So back to that 5% that's trying to do that. Yes, it's it's we, we did countless studies and there was another study that came out recently on social media. It's low double digit impact, negative impact to sales on a product. Now, it depends on the product. If you lock up 90-inch TVs, um, you're probably not going to miss a sale because that's something that Mike Green comes in, wants to see it, look at it on the display. You're going to take time. It's not an impulse item. Nobody buys a thousand, well, most people don't buy a thousand dollar TV on a whim. But if you're talking about consumables, all of health and beauty aids and all the cosmetics that are high theft items, video games have been locked up since Christ was a corporal. it does negatively impact sales. Now, one additional wrinkle to that, and this is, you know, kind of pushback I get sometimes from the industry is like, all right, pretend you're a customer, migraine comes in, you've got 20 items on your shopping list, whatever the average market basket is, let's pick on target. I'm going to come in and pick up 20 things. If 18 of those or 15 or even 10 are locked up and you have to do the call button or you have to wait. That's why e-com, I think, e-com is seeing an increase on those items because people are like, you know what, screw it. I'm not going to take what should have taken me 15 minutes to an hour when I walk into a Walgreens or a CVS or a Walmart, reduce staffing, good luck getting the guy to show up. And then you got to do it again on the next item around the corner and then across the store, it's the next item and the next item. That's why e-com, I think, has is so appealing is right. the exhaustion of the friction being added at store level well and i'm dating myself but you'll remember this i don't see a whole lot of retailers moving back to the service merchandise model where you pull a card off the shelf and you take it to a counter and they pick it up for you i just i don't see anybody going by it's not like a new idea you got to have accurate inventory to make that work so if you've got 10 true. pull tabs on the shelf and you got one in the back room you're telling the customer i got nine of them and they go back and they're like, and Walgreens was using this in Chicago. And I asked the associate, 
is this driven by how many on hands you have? No, we just put a stack of them there. I'm like, and again, I don't work there, so I couldn't challenge. And I'm like, we got outside and was talking to the team. I'm like, what a bad customer experience. You have a tag, which in my mind is as good as product. And I do my shopping trip and I get up to the register and here's my, t oh yeah, so about that. You're like, seriously? That's really the main reason I came in. I have, I have a I have a brief story, and then we're gonna got one more question here. Um, I, I was in a location that won't go no, go name because I'll put somebody on the spot. But I was in a Walmart store, and I had like ten items I was trying to pick up. Picked up all nine. One of them was I needed a new set of razor blades. You'll laugh about that because we just talked about razor blades. They were locked up. I tried to find an associate, couldn't find an associate, and even if I could find an associate, I'd have to go to another counter to actually stand in line to check out. I went, nope, I'm using Walmart's Wi-Fi. I'm using their Wi-Fi to order for Amazon. I'll have it, I'll have it delivered to my house when I need it because I didn't need it right away, right? Yeah. I wonder how much that happens. Well, that happens all the time. Sure it does. But when it's not a, you know, it, it depends. And I'm not a marketing guy with all the studies in my head and preferences. And all, but you know what? If it's something as utilitarian as that, why not go to Amazon? Yeah. I'm over the frustration at store level. So with reduced staffing, nobody's there to unlock what was locked up before, which was already a pain in the butt before. Now you've made it worse with reduced staffing. And oh, by the way, you got out of stocks on unlocked product. Yep. So they're, it's unsustainable, the yep. environment we're in. It's just not. Well, here, here's the takeaway for me. You cannot improve what you cannot measure. Okay. If you're trying to improve something, you can't measure it, good luck, right? Um, and, and the bottom line is we cannot measure real-time items. And I'm not talking about UPC. I'm talking about this particular selling unit. This one right here is available or not available. I don't know that today. And until we unlock that, we don't have the data. Joe Cole does from Macy's, but nobody else has the data today that tells us, I can tell you exactly where it's coming from. Brand, we've got about a couple minutes left. I'm I'm going to ask you one question, which is sort of open open question that I ask a lot of my guests. Which is, uh, we've asked, we've covered a lot of stuff from shrink to bad actors to technology to you know what can merchants, et cetera, and suppliers do about it. Anything that I didn't ask you, what's on your mind that I didn't ask you that was as a really important point that you want to make sure gets made? I think investment in broader impact technologies so and it, you know that's been a passion for 15 years now when we used to go to darpa and you know collaborating with other retailers went to darpa went to mit went to caltech boeing lockheed uh you name it all the non-traditionals i did it last week with a group of uh, startups in israel um over 100 people were on that call about here are the pain points of retail please solve this um the main pain points, not, you know, everything. Um, so to me, it's real investment, you know, in the absence of real investment, Mike, uh, and the recognition that if I'm Target and I lost $5 billion this year, I'm sure that, you know, rather than just lose the $5 billion, are there a few hundred million I can give to the Gary Smith at Target and say, hey, dude, you do what you need to do. And hey, if it's a third party solution, then let's do it. Yep. And stop stop the mindset of it's really not a big problem. It'll go away. And oh, by the way, if you do bring me a third party solution, I'm probably more inclined, certain retailers are more inclined to try and copy that than they are of legitimately bringing them on and immediately impacting the issue. Mm -hmm. So the investment to me, dude, in the absence of investment, you and I can have this same conversation five years from now. I don't see a lot. I don't want to be pessimistic. I'm always glass half full, but it's 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 got to be a money thing. We got to get over ourselves and start opening the checkbook. Yep. Brand, thank you very much. Um, we we covered a lot of stuff. There is definitely a link between shrink and on-shelf availability. We've seen it time and time and time again. And I would argue, honestly... If it's on the shelf, but a locked up in a cabinet, is it really on the shelf for a customer to buy? Yeah, maybe not. We haven't never, never, just because it's there doesn't mean I can get to it. Just like we may have a lot of items in the back room of a store, but the customer doesn't know, well, they're not going to go back there and look, right? So it's the same kind of operational thing. But 
yeah. incredible topic. Uh, please reach out to Brand if you have any questions around this topic, whether it's a retailer, a technology provider, uh, or a CPG company that's interesting to know about what the CPG's role is in the asset protection space. Uh, Brand, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it as always. And uh, we'll catch you on the next podcast. Sure thing, brother. Appreciate it, man. Thanks.